Thank you very much, uh, Rhiannon, for your words of welcome. And uh, it's really lovely to be with you all again uh, this morning, and especially to turn to uh, the last in this series on the fruits of the Spirit. Um, I ought, ought to indicate that uh, Graham and I have done a bit of a tater-tate on this. One minute he said, just preach on the last of the fruit, self-control. But then he said, maybe you could do a summary sermon on the whole lot. And I said, what about the Bible reading that's set for the day? Well, you could tie that in too. So if I'm a bit confusing today, just bear with me. We will try and bring uh, some of that uh, together. It's been uh, really encouraging that you've been doing this series. And uh, as, it, as it ties into the main theme of the letter to the Galatians, the one overarching word in this letter, of course, is the word freedom, finding freedom in Christ and uh, a freedom from the obsessive burden of legalism, of thinking that I can earn my own way to heaven as long as I try harder, but not slipping into the idea that freedom means I can do just as I please. That is an absolute caricature of the gospel. Finding freedom in Christ, liberty in Christ, Christian liberty is a wonderful truth, provided we recognise the dangers of those terrible extremes. Now, I take it in the series so far, you would have seen the, the framework, the bookends, as it were, which hold all of this together. For example, in uh, chapter 522, we, it's introduced with the words, live by the Spirit. Live our lives under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He used to be the prevailing energy and uh, governing principle in all that we do. Live by the Spirit, chapter 516. And that leads naturally to 522, where we read... The fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of God's Holy Spirit, is seen in these things which you've been looking at. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, etc. And then it leads to the key verse which you're looking at this morning in chapter 8. For I'm, I'm going to focus on verses 6 to 8 of chapter 6. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. That's a great summary statement, as it were, of all that the, uh, the Apostle has been drawing to our attention. This is, this is what living life under the Lordship of Christ means, living it under the, the Holy Spirit means. The one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap life eternal. Uh, Leon Morris, in his, uh, one of his commentaries, makes this comment, the believer must wage a constant war against the flesh for if he gives into it, the words of the flesh become manifest in his life. That when he determinedly sets himself against the flesh and looks to the spirit for the strength he needs, the fruit of the spirit is his. That's a really great summary statement about what I hope you've been thinking about over these past weeks, about surrendering ourselves to the authority, the controlling of the Holy Spirit and seeing the, the fruit, the evidence of that which flows uh, from that. Um, I began to think about this issue of self-control, how this fits into the sermon. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it is worth making it clear at the beginning. For what, uh, what uh, Bowen Morris goes on to say about the Holy Spirit is, it is God's gift, the Holy Spirit is God's gift, but he does not get it if he opts for self-centeredness. If you are wrapped up in your self-centeredness, your own agenda... That will not allow the Holy Spirit to prevail in your life. Indeed, a definition, the opposite of that, of course, is self-control. We're not 
the self is not on centre stage, but Christ is on centre stage. A definition of that is, the idea is that of a man keeping a firm hand on his desires and passions, a man or a woman, keeping a firm hand on his desires and passions. So I hope that could provide something of the framework of what we want to, uh, what we want to focus on this morning. That's the sort of the bookends as we come especially to verses 6 to 8 in the text, but I'll be referring back to what went before. Let's pray first of all, shall we? Gracious God, we do thank you for your word, the Bible. We thank you that you are a speaking God, a communicating God. You've not left us in darkness to make wild guesses about you or to grope after you, but you have revealed yourself in your word, under the Holy Spirit, and supremely in the one to whom the, the scriptures bear witness, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us the receptive hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the amazing privileges of being a Christian, a child of God, is the challenge to make a difference in the lives of others, other people. If you're to do this effectively, then you need to be convinced uh, if, we, uh, if we genuinely love God, you genuinely love him, that's a priority in your life, and that will lead to loving what he desires. At the core of our identity as Christians is the reality that followers of Jesus love God more than just pleasing themselves, more than just loving sin, as it were. God has sealed us with his spirit when we commit our lives to Christ. We are sealed, guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing gift, but like all gifts, it can be misused. Remember the statement that Leon Morris made, it is God's gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We talk a lot about that, but the gift can be misused. There's a story told of two wealthy brothers who set out one Christmas to purchase the very best gift they could give to their mother. They were very wealthy people and they were trying to outdo one another in the gift they would provide for their mother. The search for this present came so fierce and competitive that the two brothers turned it into a contest to see who could find the most unique, most remarkable, extraordinary present that was possible. One brother thought he'd found the perfect present. He found the Zerka bird. Anyone heard of the Zerka bird? If you've not heard of the Zerka bird, don't worry. Now, the Zerka bird was no ordinary bird. It was a very rare bird, or so the story goes, a special creature and cost many thousands of dollars. It had been flown in especially from the Amazon region of South America. The bird could speak five different languages. It could recite beautiful poetry and sing operatic arias. This was truly an amazing bird. The brother had paid dearly for the Zerka bird and took trouble to package it carefully, safely, so as that it might arrive on Christmas Day. On Christmas Day, he gave his mother plenty of time to wake up, eat breakfast, and open his gift. Finally, when his curiosity got the better of him, he called his mother with urgency, and she picked up the phone. He almost shouted down the phone, Mother, Mother, what did you think of the beautiful Zerka bird I sent you? From the other end of the line, his mother replied, Oh, son, it was delicious. <laughs> How you can misuse... A gift. Well, it's a, uh, it's a humorous story, amusing story, but it makes the point that God intends us to appreciate, appropriate the gift he has given us. His great gift of salvation and the indwelling of his spirit were not meant to be, make us simply feel good. True religion is not about 
a pie in the sky when you die. Rather, it should make a difference to everyday living in practical matters as we relate to other people and show the love of Christ to other people. Practical things, everyday things. And three of these are before us in this text this morning in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 6. If you truly value the gift that you have received, it will dramatically change your value system. That came through, by the way, in the reading from Proverbs. What are the values which we live out, which we prize, which we adhere to? Now, the first of these is valuing the ministry that you have received. Look at chapter 6 and verse 6. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Now, we live in a pretty topsy-turvy world today where old values seem to be being overturned at every, um, every uh, position. Instead of valuing marriage and family, some people can hazard all of that for a moment of pleasure in an affair. It seems like they value the affair more than the lifelong security of a blessed marriage. Seems like our word has elevated instant gratification being one of the highest values in our culture. Instead of being a person of integrity, the pressure is on to compromise this value and look for shortcuts to success. Uh, the obsession with gambling in our country, I think, is an example of this, getting the sort of something-for-nothing approach. Tony Campolo, in his little book, captures this well. His book, Who Switched the Price Tags?, it's like the things which we valued a generation ago and prized have now been relegated to being of no importance at all and things we would have abhorred had nothing to do with us suddenly now centre stage. Tony Campolo's grasped it accurately. Who switched the price tags? If you were to draw up a list of 100 things that people value, I wonder what the list would look like. What would be at the top of the list? and what would be down towards the bottom of the list. Some things would immediately come to mind. This is people in general. Our family, a secure job that provides fulfilment, plenty of leisure, and so on. Now, it's not always what we say that reveals our values, by the way, as what we do. The way you spend your time provides the best clue to what you value, what you get excited about, usually betrays what is important in your life. And those of you who are into watching horses perform and might have watched the Golden Slipper at Rose Hill yesterday, I like horses but I'm not into gambling, let me get, make that clear, um, you would have seen something of this remarkable Cinderella horse win the race and the absolute euphoria, almost uh, hysteria, of those who owned and backed the horse. There was no question about what they valued, where their values lay, what was important to them, what their priorities were. At that point, there'd be absolutely no doubt. No, no surprise, of course, that in Australia, the things that we rate highest are in the list are things like sport. Many Christians are obsessed with sport and their lives revolve around watching rather than participating in various competitive sports. So what does your life say about your values. I want you to think about that for a moment. What does your life say? If an average person in the street was to get to know you, what does your life say about your values? 
At the beginning of the uh, Anaconda Gold Mining Company in America, a story is recorded of two prospectors who came upon an amazing find. They immediately went off to register their claim in the local town and to take steps to ensure that no one learned of their discovery. They were very careful. They surreptitiously crept around the town, went out to, to, claim, to their claim where they'd found the gold under cover of darkness. However, when they got there, they discovered dozens of people feverishly digging for gold. A newspaper at the time recorded a single illuminating comment. This is a true story. Though they told no one, their faces betrayed the secret. Isn't that a great story? What's the spiritual principle there? What ought to be evident on the faces of God's people, both as we gather and as we serve him in daily life and are absolutely devoted to him as fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus, what should our faces exhibit, our lives exhibit? What we truly value will usually be revealed in the way we behave and the appearance on our faces. So this morning I want to ask you, how much do you value the ministry of the word of God through this church and the privilege of being part of this Christian community? Is the importance of this in your life matched by your commitment to regularly meet with God's people, to serve with a glad and humble spirit, and to give generously to enable the ministry to prosper? I'm not casting any doubt upon that, but we need to put that out there uh, front and centre. Uh, the way this is expressed in our text this morning is in those words, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. At a number of places in scripture, God's people are called upon to consider carefully the benefits of receiving Christian ministry. It's no accident that the, the pastoral work, uh, uh, that, that pastoral work uses the image of the shepherd, whose role it is to find the sheep, feed the sheep and guard the sheep. In our work we call that, finding the sheep is evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus. Feeding the sheep is faithful teaching of the word of God. Guarding the sheep is protecting them from false teaching and error, which can so easily be lurking to lead people astray. The image of the shepherd of pastoral ministry. So Paul can write to Timothy, giving scriptural warrant for the proper support of those involved in preaching and teaching. And I quote, The elders who direct the affairs of the church will, well are worthy of double honour, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and again, the worker deserves his wages. 1 Timothy 5.18. The same point, by the way, is made in Paul's defence of his ministry in 1 Corinthians 9 and in Hebrews 13. What we don't often consider is the frightening possibility of having a ministry withdrawn, where there is no comfort, no word from God, no direction from him. I've been having a conversation recently with uh, Bishop uh, Rick Lewis, who's the Bishop of Armadale, and talking about the, the, uh, the struggle that he's facing with at least a third of his parishes who cannot afford a minister anymore. Another third are borderline, they're just coping, and a third are sort of thriving. But a third of those parishes in Armadale Diocese have no regular ministry. That's a tragedy, isn't it? Good, godly people but with the decline in the rural sector, shrinking congregations, people where it's not a priority anymore, this is a, a very sad issue. Of course, 
Amos, who refers to this, refers to it as a judgment on the nation of Israel. For he talks of a time that will come because of the wickedness of his people that there would be a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Let me quote, The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine throughout the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Amos 8, 11 and 12. Has the thought ever occurred to you of that sort of spiritual famine? I think of the state of our nation, a nation which seems to have given up on God and what that might mean for future generations. What an awful judgment that would be. Most of us have been extraordinarily blessed in sitting under Christ-centred, Bible-based ministry and we should never take that for granted. In our list of the hundred things we most value, godly Christian ministry ought to have featured. But where was it on our list? How much do we share, for that's the word that St Paul uses here, how much do we share what we have received to support others? Or do we leave the work of ministry, the burdens of day-to-day uh, running of the church to others? If our values are dictated by the secular world around us, then we are in a very precarious position indeed. Now, if that is the, the first, think carefully. That's what verse 6 is saying. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share good things with, all his, with his instructor. The second is think carefully about the consequences of your words and actions. Think about the fruits of the Spirit. Think about the difference that Christ should make in your life. We need to ask this question. Think about the consequences of your words and actions. Look at what uh, we read in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. What is our life sowing? Where are we putting our energy? This is the, uh, the way it's expressed in the passage before us. In essence, we need to hear this as a, uh, something of a wake-up call to all of us. It's virtually saying, to use the uh, colloquial, you can't fool God. Meanness in our behaviour in terms of our giving or caring for others is not an attractive quality. We might think that we can hide our behaviour from others, but God is not fooled. I take it that's what this verse is saying. He can see through us like a pane of glass. If we use our resources, all the things we've received, simply, and I quote, to indulge the sinful nature, that's what verse 8 says, literally sowing to the flesh, then we will reap the inevitable consequences of such behaviour. As verse 8 expresses it, sowing to please the sinful nature will produce a harvest of destruction. You see, we live in a moral universe and much as people might like to deny it, there are sense of absolutes of right and wrong. Actions have consequences. This is a moral universe where cause and effect operate and there are certain consequences to our actions. If you lead a habitually immoral life, don't be surprised if you contract sexually transmitted diseases, cause and effect. If you desire to get on top of other people and trample over other people to get your own way and to advance yourselves, don't wonder that one day there will be a payback. 
If you're selfish, you use your money for your own personal gratification, ignoring the crying needs of the disadvantaged all around you. Don't complain if one day you discover that money will not satisfy your cravings anymore. You'll be left with emptiness. We may not like to face the fact that as you sow, so shall you reap, but surely it's true. If we allow the dark side of our nature, as psychologists would call it, to dictate our behaviour, then know for certainty that there will be destructive consequences. Among the Jewish rabbis at the time of Jesus, they had two words to describe the two natures in man, the two inclinations, they called it, the dark side and the, the light side. Uh, the one they referred to as the Yetzahara and the other the Yetzahatob, two strong words in, in uh, Hebrew. The one was the evil inclination, the other the inclination to do good, warring at each other. The struggle is going on all the time. In the New Testament and the teaching of St Paul, these are simply described as the flesh and the spirit. The flesh or the sinful nature is not to be the controlling influence in our lives. It must not be our master. It must not have its way. As St Paul writes in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. It was nailed to the cross so that the sinful nature might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And a little later he says, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its evil desires. The struggle between our desires, our passions, sinful desires and passions, and the prevailing influence of the Holy Spirit, that is the tension which is going on, the struggle. And we need to be deeply aware of that. So the question we need to ask is this, how am I about my relationship with Jesus Christ? Am I driven by an overwhelming sense of gratitude and therefore am I determined to not let sin have the upper hand, recognise it, resist it, recognise the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking him he may devour? For if we really value our relationship with Christ, I will not use my time and my money to simply feed my own desires, my own passions. Look again at Galatians 5.16. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Now there's the third dimension to this question of values. That is brought to us in verse 8. There's what I call investing with an eternal harvest in view. Investing. Look at verse 8. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from the sinful nature will reap destruction, but the one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Eternal life. If you were to draw up a, a list of uniquely Christian values, I wonder what it would look like. Would it be obvious things like valuing truth, relationships, Growing in Christ-likeness, seeking the approval of God rather than the approval of others, and so on. Good little exercise for you to do when you, when you go home. I'm sure that you'd come up with some really interesting suggestions. But in terms of our behaviour, what specific values will determine how we behave? And one of these is having an eternal perspective or sowing to please the Spirit. 
like there's a ledger here with a credit side and a debit side. In my actions, my speech and my behaviour, where are things being directed? We'll go to the, the positive side of the ledger or the negative side of the ledger. Do not store up for yourselves, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and seal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, having an eternal perspective. Storing up treasure in heaven means having this perspective on all that you do. I find it interesting that the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament in chapter 3, we have this statement. I frequently use it in taking funerals when people are confronted with the, uh, the awfulness, the enormity of death. This is what chapter 3 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Verse 11, and a little later we read, I know that everything that God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. If we look at the wonder of the world and all that God has blessed us with is our response to utterly worship and revere him. Do we understand that he has set eternity in our hearts? We are not just a mixture of atoms and so on which will die and go to the grave. No, not at all. He has set eternity in the hearts of men. I recall the wonderful example of Arthur Stace, that man who wrote in copperplate writing on the streets of Sydney, the word eternity, which was captured, of course, in the, in the uh, events of the uh, millennium on the Harbour Bridge. Remarkable story. This man, has, to use his own words, wandered into a church, almost a vagrant, we would call him, wandered to a little church in Surrey Hills in Sydney, as he says, to get a rock cake, but I came out with the rock of ages. Man transformed in his own way, he sought to live out this principle of sowing for eternity. For years and years and years, he would travel the, the trains of Sydney, the streets of Sydney, and write on the pavement the word eternity. God has set eternity in the hearts of men, and everything that God does will endure forever. What does that say to you this morning? As I look around this congregation, I know that some of you can nod your heads and you would affirm that strongly. You are utterly convinced of that. Uh, there's a deep satisfaction in knowing that investing your time, your gifts, your money in something that will last is truly rewarding. There's nothing more fulfilling, nothing more lasting than being part of the great enterprise of moulding hearts and minds in Christ's service whenever and wherever God gives you the opportunity. I've spoken to many people who are approaching the end of their lives who have said that they wish they'd spent more time with their families more time in developing their spiritual lives, more time in doing something significant for God and his kingdom. But I've never spoken to a single person on their deathbed who wished that they'd spent more time in the office or more time aggressively pursuing advancement in their career or more time in the pursuit of wealth and possessions. Not a single one. What a challenge there is in this text this morning. A man reaps what he sows and the one who sows to please the spirit will reap eternal life. Have you an eternal perspective on all that you do? Some time ago I read the obituary to Richard Wormbrandt, the pastor who was imprisoned by the communists for some 11 years. You can imagine the desperation of that man's experience. For three years of that time he was placed in solitary confinement in a dungeon underground with no human contact. 
and constantly interrogated. But he kept himself strong by preaching a sermon to himself every night. Think about that. You can read about it in sermons from solitary confinement. The only person he had contact with was a prisoner in an adjacent cell who he communicated with by tapping on the wall in Morse code. And he led that man to Christ. Having an eternal perspective, whatever your circumstances, however desperate, what a wonderful thing to be able to keep that before us at all times, keep that perspective, living life under the constraining influence of the Spirit and resisting all that belongs to the flesh. May God give us grace to put those things into practice in our lives today and in the days ahead.